Glad you're with us this morning. Uh, let's jump right into our time of teaching and learning together today. We are going to uh, begin our series on uh, how to use our spiritual gifts. We're going to be looking at a couple passages in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that talk about this. And so today, I want to share two different places in the New Testament, uh, two different passages of the Bible, one written, both written by an apostle, one written by the apostle Peter in a letter, the other written by the apostle Paul in a different letter. And some of you who have studied the Bible a little more extensively than others might say, didn't Peter and Paul have some issues between the two of them? How is it that we compare them up uh, and talk about the same topic together? Yeah, they did have an issue. They had an issue about uh, what should be their priority, which people group should be their priority in evangelizing. Paul also had some issues with Peter about perhaps some of his racist tendencies and treat, acting one way around a certain group of people and another way around a different group of people. Uh, they didn't end up resolving their differences, but they agreed to disagree. And Peter focused his evangelistic effort on the Jews. Paul focused his evangelistic effort on the Gentiles and the impact of both of their ministries are still being felt to this day. They had a lot in common though. This is one thing that they did. So let me share these two scriptures with you. We'll be in the New Testament. You can follow along in your handouts that are inside your bulletin. You can read along on the screen. And if you have a hard copy of the Bible or your Bible uh, through an app in your phone, I invite you to, to go along with me. I'll be reading through the New, New Living Translation. First, uh, from 1 Peter Chapter, oh, now the lights are in my eyes today. Now I'm seeing dots everywhere. Yeah, there was a typo in here, and I'm the one who did it, so I apologize. First Peter, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And this is the sentence I really want us to phone it, hone in on. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you're his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. Um, the summary of this sentence, because this definitely needs some explaining. Peter was a pretty deep guy, needs some explaining. Basically, the way I'd summarize the sentence is this. Peter's saying, if you've been saved by the grace of God, and you're being built together in some type of a, a family, a body, with other human beings who have also been saved by God, uh, then his glory will come to you in the same way that it did in the Old Testament temple. That's what he's saying. It's like if you've been saved, because he's writing to Jews. Jews knew all about the Old Testament. They knew all about the temple. They knew all about the stories, the historical accounts of what happened in the tent of meeting or the tabernacle or the temple. They knew about how God had come down in glory and fire and smoke and, and everything else. And he says to the people, thank you, I was going to ask if someone could either go out and tell Moses to be quiet or just, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I appreciate that. It was a little distracting to me. Um, what he's saying to the New Testament church, what he's saying to modern believers is that if you're saved by God and you're willing to live in a community based on love for God and love for each other, you become like a living stone. Not a dead stone that they built the Old Testament temple with, but a living stone that's being built together shoulder by shoulder, brick by brick, block by block with other believers, and that God's glory will come to you in the same way it did to that building in the Old Testament. Okay, that's what Peter's saying. Here's what Paul, Paul tells us a little bit about how that happens. Paul says there's different, and this is 1 Corinthians 12 verses 4 through 11, there's different kinds of spiritual gifts but the same Spirit is the source of all of them. There's different kinds of serving, but we serve the same Lord. God works in many different ways, but it's the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each one of us so we can help each other. So one person, to one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same Spirit gives a message of special knowledge. The same Spirit gives great faith to another. And to someone else, the Spirit gives the gift of healing. He gives one person the power to perform miracles and another the ability to prophesy. He gives someone else the ability to discern whether a message is from the Spirit of God or from another spirit. Still another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages, while another is given the ability to interpret what is being said. So he gives a list of like... Not an exhaustive list, but a list of nine different examples of gifts the Spirit gives to Christians to help us build one another up. He says, it is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each 
person should have. So I want to do the very best that I can of unpacking this for you to make illustration. Um, I had a fun time with my family on Friday night. It was about 6 o'clock on Friday evening, and the last of the people who had dropped in unexpectedly to our house had finally left. And uh, I looked at my wife, and we had an experience we had not had in the last six weeks. It was a Friday night at 6 o'clock, and all four of us were at home with nothing left on the agenda. And uh, my two boys were sitting at, at the table. I have a six-year-old and a one-year-old. And I was like, man, it is really quiet around, quiet around here. When's the last time we had a Friday night, just the four of us at home? And Chase says, can we have pizza and movie night? And um, once he voiced it, I was in an awkward position because I could either bring great joy or great disappointment by how I responded. But it seemed good to us. And we said, why not? And so we decided we were going to have pizza and movie night. Night. And uh, so here's the way it works in our home in 2018. Um, my wife sat down on one couch and pulled out her smartphone and pulled up the app for our favorite pizza place and punches a few numbers. And with one fingerprint, she orders exactly what we want without having to talk to a human being, without having to wait on hold, without worrying about whether they really are going to make half of it one way and half of the other, without worrying about, you know, what payment situation we're going to arrive at at the door. It was all done on the couch, more or less in silence on her phone. We also had to select a movie. And in our house, we have this little remote control. I press the power button, and then it has one little red button with white letters on it that says Netflix. And I press that button, and immediately, you know, our television connects to the internet, and now Netflix is on the screen, and all these little tiles come up. You know, we have it preset for the kids, you know, the kids' user, and so it brings up pretty much a collection of movies that, for the most part, are going to be acceptable. There's a few that we're, we're a little nervous about, and we can just, with the remote control, and my six-year-old can do this, we can start flipping through thousands of different opportunities for what movie we want to watch. He landed on, I was hoping they wouldn't land on Cars 3. We have seen that movie about 200 times in the last two months. My one-year-old, it's the only really movie that he likes. Cars are not cars to him. They're called Go-Go's. So, you know, he wakes up in the morning, his eyes open. Hi, Daddy. Go-Go's. That's all he wants to do all day long. So we agreed not to watch Cars 3, but because we had this little remote control, we could sit there together. He landed on The Secret Life of Pets. And so I'd never seen it before. Um, we land on it. He presses a button, and then as soon as the little dial completes loading, which took all of about four seconds, which for my six-year-old was way too long, um, we're watching a movie, and 20 minutes later, knock on the door, the pizza comes in. We didn't have to leave our living room <laughs> to have a pizza and a movie night. I was thinking back to how complicated this would have been 15 years ago or 20 years ago, way back in the ancient day, in the day of the stores called Blockbuster Video. Do any of you remember Blockbuster? I'm dating myself now. Wasn't that the stuff at the time? It was like, if you wanted to have a pizza and movie night, you went to, for those of you who don't know about the phenomenon known as Blockbuster, founded by the late Dr. Wayne Huizenga, uh, it, it was this retail, think about a store the size of a CVS, right? And if you don't know about a CVS, just drive five minutes in Perry Hall, you'll see 14 of them, okay? Um, you, there are these, like, huge retail stores, and you walked inside, and they had rows and rows. It was like a library of movies, like physical copies. Like back in the day, they had these ancient things called videotapes, and they, you actually had to go walk through the aisles and look at, and it was kind of tricky because you'd see the box of the movie you wanted, but that didn't necessarily mean it was there. You had to look for the fake box behind it that was like in the plain white jacket with the blue letters, and if it was there, your movie was available. And you'd have to kind of wander through the whole store, right, looking at what was out, new attractions, old things, and you could wander by different. You could still kind of do the same thing we're doing on Netflix, except you actually had to get up and go to the store and walk around and do it. And then you had to, like, pick out the movie you wanted and go wait in this very long line to be scanned out. And you weren't actually buying the movie, you were borrowing the movie. And do you know how Blockbuster made their most money? Late fees. True story. In fact, that's eventually how they went out of business because they were unwilling to change with the times. That's why people started switch, switching to subscription-based service. Didn't have to worry about late fees, but it was their number one profit maker. Their average customer spent $40 a year on late fees. It was $200 million a month they were making on late fees. But, I mean, you had to deal with late fees. Not only did you have to check the movie out, you had to remember to bring it back on time. And be kind, please rewind. 
And then for some of you, you're still a ghost to Blockbuster. You probably still have Blockbuster movies in your house that because they were late and you were too ashamed, you never took them back. And then when they went bankrupt, <laughs> you made out just okay. There's a whole lot more of this story. We don't have the time to go into it. But, you know, it was a very different experience. Even if you wanted to get pizza by delivery, you had to call on the phone. I used to work for Pizza Hut in college. You'd call on the phone and you'd wait on hold a long period of time. You would eventually maybe get to speak to a human being on the other side who was less than enthusiastic that you were calling to order pizza from them. And you had to kind of hope that your level of communication and theirs were of the same level that what you really wanted ended up on a pizza in a box and at your house. You see, the experience has changed now. There was a little company that went to Blockbuster in 2000. They were worth $50 million at the time, and they asked Blockbuster to consider buying them. And they said, here's what we want to do. We want to create an online experience for your customers, and we'll focus on that. That's what we do. You focus on retail. And they laughed that company out of the room. That little company was known as Netflix, which today is worth $28 billion. Blockbuster was bankrupt five years later. Now, here's where this is all going this morning. Um, the reason I can't, well, the business reason, there's a lot of business reasons why Netflix took off and Blockbuster went bankrupt. But one of the consumer reasons why is because here's what Netflix figured out. If I can give the customer as good or a superior experience with less inconvenience, they'll prefer that. In other words, if we can give them access to the same or more movies with less driving, with no late fees, with less concern about the inconvenience, with the access of putting it at their fingertips, if we can give them as good or a better experience, they won't, they'll lose the need to leave their house and go to another place and experience it. If they can have a better experience at home, they won't need to go to the store anymore. And eventually, Blockbuster, who was unwilling to change with the times, went out of business. And here's my concern. Is church going the way of Blockbuster? I worry when I look at statistics about church attendance nationally continuing to dip, the frequency at which Christians who are connected to a church, the frequency by how many times they attend church is dipping, I get concerned because we live in a day and an age where lots of the things that church has to offer, you can get at home as good or better quality than you can get here. And I wonder if the mission of the church is kind of like trying to reopen Blockbuster and say, listen, don't stay at home and get what the church has to offer on your own time, inconvenience yourself, get up, get dressed, look presentable, brush your teeth, mouthwash, get caffeinated, and come and sit in a beautiful auditorium in very comfortable seats with no profanity carved into them and get an experience that is somehow superior than what you could get at home. Here's the challenge I'm facing and we're facing together. What unique value does coming together and getting together physically with other believers as a church, what unique benefit or value does that offer you that is otherwise unavailable to you in any other way? Think about that for a second. You might think for a second, well, listen, it's, it's the worship, it's the music. I got news for you. <laughs> iTunes, Spotify, the radio, the internet, YouTube, all the songs that we sung this morning the original people who recorded it are now at your fingertips. You don't have to go to a bookstore and go to the back and get a CD and have a CD, but you can get it anytime you want. Well, what about the teaching? Listen, you can get all of access to all of the best Bible teachers in the world at your fingertips at home, and some of you take advantage of this. You can go at home and be immediately involved in a live stream with Stephen Furtick or Francis Chan or Joel Osteen or whoever it is that is your flavor of the day. You can get that teaching anytime you want it archived on demand. You don't have to come here to get good teaching. You don't have to come here to get good worship. You don't have to come here to give. You can give online. You can give to 100 different ministries. Or you don't have to come here and not give. You cannot give at home. You don't have to come here to volunteer. All kinds of places, Habitat for Humanity, soup kitchens, Goodwill. There's all kinds of different places you can go and volunteer and serve people's needs. You can get involved in all kinds of projects that are helping people with social injustice and helping people who are poor and helping people who have disabilities and serving the elderly and serving the young. There's all kinds of different places you can go and do that. Well, the church offers free child care. 
Number one, it's not free. <laughs> Somebody's paying for your kids to be taken care of, <laughs> right? There's plenty of other places you can go or that you can pay for to have your kids taken care of. Now that we're all kind of pessimistic, well, you know, think about it. That's why some of your friends don't come to church. They just don't simply see the value uniquely of what we do when we make an effort to come physically to a certain place and get together with other people who believe like we do. And I wonder, because the stats are showing us that this is losing value. Our number, listen, at Echo, our giving is up 6% over a year ago, and our attendance is down almost 20%. Our data shows us that there's not necessarily more people leaving the church because more people have joined us than left us in the last year, but people are coming less frequently to church. More and more people are tuning in to our podcasts and watching on Facebook instead of coming to church. Well, Pastor, is that a bad thing? Not necessarily, but... You can throw the baby out with a bathwater. Why don't we just shut this down together, all together then and just put podcasts out? Is that what the Bible teaches? How does the Bible answer this question for us? Is there still unique value and purpose in a modern age of technology and having a brick and mortar space of any environment where believers come together to be with one another in God's presence? The Bible does answer that question for us. In the passages we read, it gives us two reasons that I'll just give to you right now. Because um, I'm having a hard time seeing my notes, so I'll, I'll go without them. Um, my eyes, again, I don't know what the deal is. I'm just seeing dots everywhere this morning. Um, probably the bright lights right in my eyes have something to do with it. Uh, but uh, the two reasons that it gives us is, number one, Peter tells us this. He says that the glory of God is available to the church in ways it is otherwise unavailable. Here's what he says. If you're part of a church, the glory of God is available to be poured out and displayed on the church, a gathering of people, of believers, the church family, not a building. Church. It's available to be demonstrated and poured out on the church in a way it's otherwise unavailable. In other words, if you're never ever part of a body of Christians, there's a part of the expression of God's glory that you won't find any other place than in the body of believers. The second thing that Paul shows us is this, that having an experience in the presence of God communally with other people will shape you in ways that are different than having experiences with God's presence individually. There's something unique about being in God's presence with others that is different and will actually shape you differently than if you only ever have individual experiences with God's presence. That's not to say that individual experiences in God's presence should be devalued. Please don't hear me saying that. In fact, your individual practicing of understanding God's presence on your own time when you study the Bible, when you pray, when you confess your sins, when you're loving people, when you're serving people, when you're forgiving, when you're asking for forgiveness. These things you're doing in your own time, these experiences you're having with God should so heighten your hunger and thirst and make you less uncomfortable with God's presence that when we come together as a body and God pours out his glory, it should be less unfamiliar. Our personal practicing of the presence of God prepares us for the group, community, communal enjoying of the presence of God together. But there are ways that the presence of God shapes us when we have these experiences together as a church family that is different than individually. In other words, what the Bible says is it's not the worship, it's not the quality of the teaching, it's not, those are not the main differentiators of what happens as a group and individually. He says it's all about a different way of connecting to the presence of God that is unique to experiencing it with other people. Pastor, you're going on and on about connecting to the presence of God. We sang about it this morning. We sang about being more aware of God's presence. Pastor, you invited people down front and said, if you want to connect with God more deeply and intimately, we're going to take some time to do that. Why are you harping on it? Because it is a theme that runs through the entire Bible from the beginning to the end. There are eight or nine themes. Sometimes we forget that the Bible, in addition to being the inspired word of God, as I believe that it is, it's also one of the most, probably the most amazing piece of literature ever compiled. 
It spans almost 4,000 years of history, 66 different books, multiple different authors. And if you read it as just a collection of individual books, each with its own unique story, you miss out on some of the themes that are carried through the whole book through people who didn't sit down and plot to carry out that theme. In fact, one of those themes you find from Genesis 1 to the very last verse of the Bible is connection to the presence of God. How to connect to God's presence. Look how beautiful the Bible is. How does the Bible start? Genesis 1 and 2. God creates man and it was good and they were together. You know, right? Running around naked in the garden with no responsibilities. Okay? That was a good life for them to live. They were together in God's presence. They were with him personally. God the Father came down and walked with them in the cool of the day. They were with God. And there was nothing like it. There was nothing separating them from God. Flip the whole way to the end of Revelation. How does the Bible end? All of us, together, with God. With nothing separating us in his presence. You have this theme of how to be in God's presence that starts the beginning of the Bible We see God's deepest desire has always been to be inseparable with you. And then we have a massive problem that happens just a few paragraphs in. Adam and Eve chose to break that covenant they had with God. And as a result, they were removed from the presence of God. In fact, they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. It says, God, what did God do? He puts two angels there with fiery swords to protect it. Now, why did he put guards there? Is he afraid that Adam was going to lead a rebellion and break through the angels and topple him? He wasn't protecting himself from them. He was protecting them from him. Because you see, God is a holy God. God can't dwell shoulder to shoulder with sinful, rebellious people. He can't be holy and also be neutral or indifferent to our brokenness and our sin. So there's this massive problem now. How does man reconnect to God's presence? Because they blew it. How do we get the whole way from Adam's sin to the end of Revelation where we're all back together again with God? You have the story of the Bible and all through the Old Testament is really one of the things for the Old Testament is how God made every attempt to connect his presence to his people. And pretty much everything they came up with, they ruined, didn't they? In fact, you keep reading the Old Testament, the tension keeps building. It's like, okay, they've got a plan together. They've got a good leader. They've reestablished the covenant with Abraham, and the people blew it. They reestablished the covenant with Moses, and the people blew it. They reestablished it with, you know, they had a tent of meeting, and then a tabernacle, and then a temple, and the people turned their backs on God. And all through the Old Testament, it's like God raised up one person after another after another, and he said, I'm going to make a, reestablish a covenant with you, and we're going to make this work, and I'm going to be able to connect with the people through you. But it was all imperfect, all fell apart. And it's kind of like, how do we ever resolve this issue? And the only way that theme is ever resolved is through Jesus Christ. It's the only way. In fact, if you go back to Exodus 32 through 35, the golden calf story. Have you heard of the golden calf story? Here's what basically happens in the Old Testament with God's presence. I have to really summarize this. I have to give you like a a little concentrated pill on on how this works. You have this extended couple scenes between Moses and God. The Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. Through a series of signs and wonders, God delivers them out of slavery and raises up Moses to be their leader. And he speaks to Moses, and then Moses relays what God says to him to the people. The people weren't all relating to God individually in their own tents. God was speaking to one person individually. Now, that was never God's hope and plan. He wanted to speak to all of us as a community. But because of sin, he said, I'm going to talk to you, you talk to the people. You'll be the mediator. You'll be the go-between. Because if I come myself, God told Moses several times, why did he say, I can't dwell with you? He told Moses, if I dwell with you, what will happen? I'll have to kill everybody. And because I love you, I don't want to do that. In other words, because I love you, I can't come and dwell with you. Because if I came and tried to dwell among you, I'd have to wipe you all out. So there has to be a mediator. There has to be somebody between us to connect people, sinful people to me and me to my sinful people. And in Exodus, after they get through the Red Sea, God lays it out for the people through Moses. And he basically says, I don't just want to relate to you as individuals anymore. I want to relate to you as a community. I want to relate to you as my people, 
as a group, not just individually. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to establish a covenant. And if you'll abide in this covenant, this covenant has to do with you loving me and loving one another. And it's a commitment not a few of you have to make. We're all going to make this covenant together. And if you will live in that covenant community, then my glory will come down. And Moses goes up on the mountain and God starts giving him the details of the covenant. And while Moses is up there, these people who just see the Red Sea parted decide that Moses has been gone too long. They need another God. They melt down their jewelry. They make a cow. They start worshiping. And God says to Moses, what's going on down there while you're up here? And Moses is just ashamed, destroyed. God says, see, these are a stiff-necked people. These are rebellious people. I can't come down and dwell among them. And you know how some of the rest of that story goes. But to cut to the chase, Moses goes down. He smashes the tablets. He, gets, he lets the people have it. He tells the, he, who's on my side and who's not on my side. The Levites rally to Moses' side. He says, okay, go through the camp and kill all your brothers and forefathers that are not, that are not following the Lord. They kill 3,000 people. It's a gory, difficult story. And then Moses relays to the people, God says he's not going to dwell among us anymore because of this. And the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that the people, when they heard that God's presence couldn't be among them, that God was backing away from that part of the promise due to their thing, it says they were cut to their heart. They wept aloud. They grieved. And Moses says, well, I guess the only thing I can do is go back up on the mountain on your, listen, I'm going to go back up to the mountain on your behalf and see if God will allow me to make atonement for your sins. Moses recognized that even though he wasn't the one leading the rebellion, that there was a debt between people and God that was unpayable by the people. And he recognized that if anything was going to move the situation forward, someone had to go up on a mountain on behalf of the people and ask God for their forgiveness so the relationship could be restored. I want you to know that Jesus was an even greater Moses than Moses. He recognized there's an unpayable debt by the people that someone's going to have to go up on a mountain <laughs> and make atonement for. So Moses goes up on the mountain, has this conversation with God, and he says, God, he makes this incredible statement. He says, please forgive them. If you can't forgive them, then punish me on their behalf. Who does that sound like? Jesus, punish me on their behalf. God says, I can't do that because you know what? Moses wasn't Jesus. He says, but I'll tell you what, we'll reestablish the covenant. And he says, I'll go before you. Notice he says, I, I won't go among you. I'll go before you. You'll still have my presence. But what did Moses do? He set up something called the tent of meeting. This is how they had the God's presence in the Old Testament. Sets up a tent of meeting, a little tent outside the camp. Bible tells us a stirring, stirring story in Exodus 35. It says, when Moses went to the tent of meeting, anybody who wanted to talk to God, couldn't do it in the camp. They had to go outside the camp. And they'd go into this tent, and they had to go in with their heart correct. They had to go in completely clean, ceremonially and spiritually clean before the Lord. And they would go into that tent. And the Bible says that when Moses, when it was known that Moses was getting ready to go to the tent of meeting, do you know what all three million Israelites did? They all stood at attention outside of their own family's tent. And they stood and they watched Moses, three million people. They watched him walk outside the camp. They watched him go into the tent. And the Bible says they watched the cloud of God's glory come down and surround that tent. In the Old Testament, that's kind of the best case scenario for how you experience God. You had to experience it through somebody else. There had to be a mediator. They couldn't come into a worship service like we do today and sing worship songs before the Lord and experience individually and together God's presence filling their hearts like he did the tent of meeting. They watched. Because they recognized God can't be among us because we're unclean. We need a mediator who God will speak to us through, and that's Moses. And then his glory comes down, and it was both awesome and terrifying. Well, after the tent of meeting, they had a tabernacle. God says, build a place for me to dwell. He gave them the instructions, probably the only construction plan that ever went exactly as it was on the blueprint. They built a tabernacle. God's presence come and dwelled. And then ultimately, once they got into Israel, they built a permanent structure called the temple. Second Chronicles chapter 7 gives us an idea of what happened when they finally built the temple out of like 
real stuff out of marble and stone and gold. Solomon completes this massive architectural masterpiece. And in 2 Chronicles, he, he makes this amazing prayer of dedication. And the Bible says as soon as he finished praying, God's glory came down on the physical building of the temple. In fact, read some of the sacrifice. It was like 120,000 sheep, like a, crazy amounts of sacrifices that they make. It says fire, physical fire came down from out of the sky, somehow gets into the temple, and burns up all the offerings. A fire they did not start. And it said smoke came down and filled the temple so thick that even the priests... The people set apart to represent God to the people. They were driven out. They couldn't even go in. It was too intense. It was too holy. It was too pure. They couldn't even enter. And this is happening in the face of all the... It says they all fell down with their faces to the pavement when they experienced the presence of God poured out on the temple that way. Now, to cut to the chase, I want you to understand how spectacular it is what Jesus did when Jesus came. Because now we read about God's presence being poured out in the New Testament. You have Peter with the audacity to say to Jews, he says, if you come to faith and you are saved by accepting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you, you receive his grace, you confess his lordship, you invite him to inhabit you. He says, then if you are willing, as a, as a person who's been saved by grace, if you're willing to come into covenantal community relationship with other believers, you become a living stone, you become part of a new kind of a temple, and it's better than the old one. You become part of a new covenant that's better than the old one, and you get a new go-between, a new mediator that's better than the old one. Because you see, in the Old Testament, they needed a covenant, commandments, rules to follow to stay in the covenant. If they broke the rules, they were out of the covenant and cut out from the ability to experience God's presence. In the Old Testament, they needed a go-between. They needed a mediator. They had Moses. They had Joshua. They had priests. They had others who went to God on behalf of the people. They had a temple, but it was in one place geographically. It had one coordinate on Google Maps. It was one place at one time. In specific times to specific people, God's presence would come down while other people observed and then waited to hear about what happened. You had an old covenant, an old temple. You had an old mediator. Through Jesus, now we have a new covenant that's better, a new mediator that's better, and a new temple that's better. We have a new covenant that says it's no longer about fulfilling the law. The law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not dependent upon us fulfilling a whole bunch of things we need to do and try harder. Jesus has done it all, and now it's a new covenant in his blood. We live through him. And he lives in us. We have a new mediator that's even better than the old ones. We have a new mediator, Peter says. Your mediator is Jesus Christ. And you can carry him with you all the time, everywhere. And now you can come into God's presence, not through Moses, not through a priest. But when you worship God and you feel his presence, it's because Jesus Christ lives in you. And he is giving you access to God that otherwise would be unavailable to you. And now he says you have a new temple. And that temple is what he calls the church body. And it's not a brick and mortar thing. He's like, we're the living stones. And he says, don't you understand that as spectacular as God's glory was in the Old Testament, all those stories you hear, God wants to reveal his glory to you too. And one of the unique ways he does it is through the coming together with other believers and being part of God's temple together. It's an amazing story that you see about how God wanted to be with us and he was separated from us and then through Jesus he's able to be with us again and by being saved and being by built together in body we can experience God's glory in a way otherwise unavailable to us. And Paul shows us one of the ways that that happened. Well, Pastor, how do we experience that together? There's a number of different ways. The way that I've wanted to show you over these next couple weeks is through the exchange of our spiritual gifts with one another. Paul shows us this. He shows us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And in other places, 1 Corinthians 14, he shows us in Romans. He shows us there's other lists and other places where he talks about these spiritual gifts. And what he gets at is this. When you get saved, you become part of a body. Not a business. Not a club. Not an organization. Not a team. You become part of a body. And the moment you become saved and you become part of Christ's body, our health is now dependent upon you. And your health is now dependent upon us. 
Paul uses that analogy to describe how important and indispensable you are to Christ's body and to this body of believers. The church is what we call it. Every single part of your physical body plays a unique role in its health. Even the parts you think are disposable. You might not think your thumbnail really serves that much of a purpose until you take a pliers and rip it off. (laughs) Yeah, then you find out pretty quickly, I didn't realize how bad I needed that. That was keeping me from a ridiculous amount of pain and inconvenience. You think, well, I don't want to lose my heart, but I could spare a fingernail. Yeah, until you lose it. What it says is that the way God intended our relationship with each other to work is that there is something uniquely designed into my personality that I do more naturally, with more joy, more effectively and efficiently, with greater fulfillment than maybe somebody else does. And God puts that in my personality to be a strength and a blessing to you. And there's also something unique about your personality that God has already wired in there, that you do more naturally, with more joy, with more efficiency, more organically than perhaps the person sitting next to you. And he's given you that gift to be a strength to me and to others. And part of what we're supposed to experience when we come together is not just a repetition of what we can experience individually, but there's this unique dynamic of experiencing those things together. Christianity is a together and a one another religion. It depends so much upon those interconnectedness factors that, that operate within us. We see a couple things. Paul talks about spiritual gifts here. It has been talked about. Oh, my goodness, there are books, volumes, commentaries, uh, DVD series you can buy on spiritual gifts where they will list them all, whether there's 27 or 30 or 33. They'll give you long definitions for each one. They will give you... Here's my, own, here's my challenge with those. Uh, Paul never actually takes a moment and gives us a definition of all these spiritual gifts. He doesn't say word of wisdom. Now, here's what a word of wisdom is. It's a revelation specially given by God of information that he has that you don't have that can be uniquely applied to your life to make good decisions. He just says it's a spoken gift that God gives. God just gives some people the supernatural ability to tap into his wisdom and feel the freedom to share it in a way that's understandable better than others. I don't believe that there's an exhaustive, finite list of spiritual gifts in the Bible, but I think it's a good starting place. The Bible doesn't seem to be as concerned with defining the gifts as it is about us having a deep burden to help other people who are struggling in their faith. That's the main problem. The main problem is most of us aren't really motivated to find out what we can do to help my brother or sister who seems to be going through a season where their faith is under attack. We're not really mo- We'd rather figure out what our gifts are because that builds up our, oh man, I've got this gift or these seven gifts or these 12 gifts and You know, the Bible doesn't seem to make a whole lot of uh, diagnostic tools on how to figure out which one you have. We came along later and added those. The Bible seems to be very concerned about saying this, like Paul saying to the Corinthian church, you're supposed to be different, and all of you are very much the same. All you do when you come together is you all speak in other languages that nobody in the room knows, and you do it a lot, and it makes you feel good. And visitors are coming in, and they're concluding, he says in chapter 14 verse 32 or 33 or one of those at the end of the chapter we'll talk about next week he says they're concluding you're all lunatics he says that's the last thing you need that is not the purpose of God giving you the ability and speaking other language he doesn't do it so you can get together and all do exactly the same thing with no order with a lot of nonsense and a lot of chaos He says what's supposed to be happening when you come together among other things is every one of us is coming into that room with an understanding of how God wired me uniquely and looking for opportunities to use that to strengthen somebody else I come in contact with. Could you imagine how attractive our blockbuster would be if that became something we were really comfortable with? I don't even think as I'm sharing it with you, you're opposed to that. I think you think like I think that sounds amazing. And so part of the idea of me Rolling these scriptures out to you is I don't want you to think that God's presence is somehow bottled up in the Old Testament and we can never see it that way again, or that you can just download a few podcasts and quote a few verses and watch a few shows on the internet and get the same experience in God that you can by being part of a body of believers. There's something unique about us experiencing these things together. A couple things that will put your mind at ease that we see in this passage is, I mean, I see first the Holy Spirit is the sole distributor of the gifts, says the Holy Spirit is the one who decides who gets which gifts and how much of that gift you get. That should be a huge relief to all of us. Haven't you ever negatively compared yourself to somebody else who you think is more gifted than you and felt insecure, felt ashamed, felt like I, I know I kind of excel in organizing things, but man, I'm not a planner like this person. I, 
there's no room. That's not what, listen, if you and I were the ones who determined which gifts we got and how much we got, then we'd have a reason to boast and brag and compare because then your giftedness is all about you, all about your hard work, all about the way that you were born, all about your pedigree. What the Bible says is the Holy Spirit is the one who decides what gifts you get and which ones you don't. He decides who has a lot of gifting, who has a little gifting. He decides, and that's such a relief. The only responsibility you and I have is what are we doing with what we've been given? So the person who says, well, I'm not as gifted as that person. I I don't really have anything to offer. I kind of like this, but I'm just going to bury this thing and not do it, and I'm just going to feel bad for myself. You're kind of like the one that, you know, that was at the end of the line and getting the talents handed out in the parable of the talents. He says, well, you gave that one five and that one three, and I only got one. So since obviously you're an evil person and you must like them more than me, I'll just bury it. God says, you absolute fool. As if that had, God decided how much that person got, not the individual. The Holy Spirit's the one who decides what gifts you get. Well, I don't know what they are. Okay, what do you do more naturally, with more fulfillment, with more efficiency, that comes naturally bubbling out of you? When you see certain problems or opportunities arise, which of those things are the ones that you tend to jump at and say, I could do that? That might be your gift. But pastor, that's not 150 multiple choice questions to help me diagnose this. Um, You're right, um, but I think this one's a little more accurate, a little more time tested, because you might take a test that says your gift is A, and you say, but I would not want to be caught dead doing A. Probably not your gift. Um, if If you can't carry a tune in a bucket, maybe leading people in worship, not your gift. Sometimes spiritual leaders have to come along and say gently but firmly, I know you think this is your gift, but the evidence suggests that it isn't. And for your sake and mine, we're going to help you find. Sometimes we need help. And where are you going to get that? If you go up in the treehouse by yourself and think you can figure this all out by yourself, there's a value in figuring some of these things out and discovering them in community. Can I tell you, there's hardly anything more. One of the deepest joys of being a Christian is the discovery that God wired you in a certain way that uniquely adds benefit to the lives of others. That is one of the deepest joys. And knowing that the Holy Spirit decided what you get and what you didn't get takes all of the pressure off you. You don't have to apologize for not being wired a certain way. You don't have to compare yourself unfavorably to the person. Listen, that person will be evaluated by God based on what they did with what he gave them. If he gives you a whole lot of a teaching gift, you know what you're going to be evaluated on? What did you do with that whole lot of a teaching gift? If you only have a little bit of a teaching gift, you're going to be evaluated on that. I live with the sense of an awareness that someday I'm going to stand before God and have to answer for what I did with the gift he gave me, not the gift he gave you, but the gifts he's given me. So we see the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit is the sole distributor. We also see that the reason God gives you gifts We'll conclude with the big idea. How do you like that? We'll conclude with the big idea. Those of you that have never been before don't understand why that's funny. That's usually the introduction. It's the conclusion today. Uh, the big idea is that God equips us to bring his presence into the lives of others. The equipment comes in the form of supernatural gifts and or abilities. It's a beautiful thing. Paul says this. The Holy Spirit gives you gifts Special abilities that you do more naturally, with more joy, with more fulfillment, with more efficiency, with more effectiveness than maybe somebody else. And he gave you that equipment so you can carry God's presence into the lives of other people. It's not just relegated to Moses anymore. It's not just relegated to Joshua or Aaron or a high priest. He lets you and I become his priests, Peter says. And now we get to carry the presence of God in the lives of other people through Jesus. And how do we do that? We let the gifts and the abilities that he has given us bubble up and be deployed when there's an opportunity for that gift to strengthen someone else's faith who is weak. That's what it means to strengthen somebody. To affirm and secure their faith when it's being attacked or weakened so that they can maintain an even keel in life's storms. I think about the testimony that Fred shared at the end of prayer. He came into a worship environment last Sunday morning where we didn't know, but God knew that during his week, he had been beaten up at work. And I'll tell you, if you're a man, God will generally get at your identity by giving you failure and problems at work. God makes men with this predisposition to find a lot of our identity through our work. And I'll tell you one thing, when a man goes through a tough time at work, it eats on our identity. We might not want to admit it, but it does. Not to say that it doesn't happen to women, but it really, really, really gets at the core of a man. 
We didn't know that. The worship team didn't know that. We didn't say like, you know what, we got an email from Fred this week to say he's struggling. Let's pick out every single song that has to do with identity and work. Let's get up front and say, the Lord has given me a word this morning. There might be somebody here sitting on this side. He might be Kenyan who uh, is going through a difficult time at work. We didn't manufacture anything. We didn't know. God knew. But you know what you had? You had people standing out here whose gift is hospitality. And he's coming in and finding a different environment than what he gets at work. Already in the hallway. He's finding people down this hallway whose gift is organizing and ministering to children and keeping things safe and being friendly. And he's able to drop his kids off to be in a good environment for them to learn so that his mind can really connect with God, that he's not terrified about, you know, what if my kids are screaming back there? I can't. He came into a room where people who were gifted in worship and gifted in music give volunteer time to create an environment. And all the concert of those different gifts working together is different than what you get on Netflix. You see what I'm saying? You can listen to worship at home and God can speak to you, but there's something unique that happens when you're in a live environment listening to human beings in their presence. You're worshiping someone else with someone else. There's just something unique about it. And he testified, I had a moment. All these different things working together, I had a moment. All the different collectors, there's probably two dozen people that had an influence on Fred's life using their gifts using the natural parts of their personality that created an environment for Fred to have a breakthrough in the presence of God that we didn't even know happened until this week. So much more to say. I will leave it until next week because I can do that. So much more to say. But my question for you is, do you know, have you ever been curious? Does it make you wonder, what are the unique gifts God has given me? Okay. Some of you know exactly what they are. My question to you is, are you actively using them to build value and strength into the lives of other people who need it? Or are you waiting for an invitation? Are you waiting for a lane to run in? Maybe you would say, Pastor, I have no idea what my spiritual gifts and abilities are. I hope it's not celibacy or martyrdom. Those are the two I don't want. Okay. Yeah, you could go get a book and read it and take surveys. That's fine. My simple question is for you, why don't you take some time this week while you're praying, worshiping in your own time and ask God, God, what unique parts of my personality bubble, what needs, when I hear about a need on the news or at church or at work or in the community, what are the types of needs that something in my heart leaps up and says, I need to act on this somehow? That might be a clue as to the way God's wired your personality, what things you want to respond to, and then what would you think to do. Like some of you are like, I hear that someone's house broke down or, you know, a tree fell on somebody. Well, that's a very personal example. But I mean, it, 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 I hear that somebody's just going through it at their house. You know, they had damage at their house. I, I, I want to show up there tomorrow and I want to bring them food. Or I want to show up. I want to call them on the phone and let them know I'm praying for them. Or I want to just show up. I want to write a check and help them. I want to show up and help rebuild. All those different responses you naturally have can be traced back to maybe some type of spiritual gift God's given you whether it's a word of encouragement. I got one this morning. I'm just out minding my own business, uh, you know, getting ready to walk into the auditorium here, and some sweet couple from the congregation came up to me and just said, I just, I have to tell you about this experience I had in church last week. And as they're describing their experience to me, it confirmed four or five things I've been praying about for months and seeking for God's direction on and saying, God, I'm going to trust you, but I don't know if it will check off these boxes. And they're not knowing that and just rattling it off. And I would not have experienced that if I would have sat at home and logged on to the Internet for another person's church service. I could have gotten something from it, not knocking it. Goodness, we put out podcasts and video. We're not, but those things in and of themselves will never shape you to the full extent that also being in a body of believers can. Because we're the new temple. We're the living stones. We're the ones that God says, I will now pour out my glory on you. Well, what makes us different than the people in the Old Testament? How doesn't, why, does, why can he walk among us? Why doesn't he consume us like he did them? Are we less sinful than they are? Absolutely not. But Jesus dwells in us now. Jesus dwells in those of us who are saved. Jesus lives in us. Jesus hadn't died yet in the Old Testament. But now, not because of anything I've done in my resume. Goodness, I'm not holy enough for God to dwell with me. No way. He'd have to wipe me out like everybody else. The only reason I can be close to God and I can experience those things and connect to the gifts and carry His presence is through Jesus. 
He came and did what I couldn't do. He came and he became my sacrifice. He came and died on the cross. He lived a sinless life. He was the one who really could be the one and only mediator there ever could be between God and us. And then because of that, if I'll agree to his invitation to come into his family, I get all, I get this amazing benefits package that comes along with it that I don't deserve and many of us haven't even really fully explored. And if you're living outside of relationship with Jesus, you're missing out on that. You're missing out on that. I want you to be part of the body of Christ, but the, the, the part that you bring to the table is your faith in Jesus. You have to come to a place where you've really thought deeply about who Jesus is. And at some point, it goes in and it ignites your soul. I don't know how else to describe it. It goes beyond just reading facts in a history book. There's something transformative about it when it really, the flint of his life hits the steel of your heart and sparks begin to fly. That's the invitation I want to bring to you this morning as our worship team comes. I want to bring that invitation to you this morning. So if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you want to be able to experience the presence of God in the way that we described this morning, you're excited about being part of a a church family, of a body where the way that you are designed uniquely adds so much health and value to us, and you become our brother or our sister, and we get to use the way we're designed uniquely to add value to your life and to strengthen you when you're weak. That's the invitation that I offer to you this morning. Those of you that know what your spiritual gifts already are, my question is, are you developing and deploying those gifts? Or are they lying dormant in your life and you need to pull them back out and use them again? Those of us who don't know what they are, will you be open to spending some time with God in a a discovery exercise over the next few days? And start to figure out what it is that he's put in you and then ask God to give you a heart to strengthen other people who are weak. I don't want to put so much emphasis on figuring out and naming our gifts as I do on understanding that you and I have a responsibility to strengthen the faith of those people around us and to be looking for opportunities for God to use us to build up those who are weak because Lord knows we need someone to build us up and we need to be building other people up and he's already given you all the equipment you need to carry that presence in the lives of others. Let's pray. If you're ready to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ with your life, to be saved by his grace, to be completely forgiven, like we sung earlier, to have, your, to have all the shame, for your heart to become free and for your shame to be undone. What a promise. What a promise. Think about it. Don't, at the end of the day, don't we all just really want our heart to be free and our shame to be done? And everything else you can try will accomplish that short term, but it will eventually erode. It's just a pill you take. And then the shame comes back and the chains on your heart come back. The only place you find that is in the relationship with Jesus. Simple as ABC. Admit, believe, choose. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus Christ. Confess him to be your Lord and Savior. If you're ready to do that, here's a prayer. You can pray right where you're at right now. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. You and I both know I am broken. I've been living life my own way. I feel a sense of shame and guilt about that. I'm ready for that shame and guilt to be dissolved and to find true freedom, true confidence. I believe in you, Jesus, that you're God's son, that you lived a sinless life, that you died on the cross as my substitute in my place, and that now today I am accepted by God Not because of my resume, but because of yours. Not because of anything I did, but because of everything you did. I believe you rose from the dead. You're alive today. And I choose you to be my Lord. God, what I'm saying in so many words is that you're now the king of my life, and I get off of the throne, and I invite you to sit in its place. I step away from the steering wheel and invite you to sit in its place. You lead, I follow. You're the master, I'm the servant. Thank you for saving me. In your name I pray. Amen.